Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Tim, I'm doing so well. How are you, really? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I am doing excellent today. Our guest in this episode is fantastic. She's wonderful to talk to and sort of have a, a deep and detailed conversation with. Her name is Catherine Jones, and she is the co-director of Outreach and Partnership Development at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. Yeah, what a, what an amazing title and perfectly suitable for an amazing person. She was featured during the uh, Death by Incarceration live show at the Brickbox Theater in Worcester, Massachusetts back in November, and she just blew it away. Her story is incredible. Catherine was incarcerated at the age of 13. She was just she was just a girl. At the age of 13 for murder. You could possibly say she was incarcerated for self-defense, and she spent the next 17 years incarcerated. She was released at the age of 30, and she she currently uses that traumatic experience to stand as an advocate for prison reform in her current role at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. So check out what Catherine is doing over at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. It's cfsy.org. That is the website. And we really hope you enjoy this conversation. I think it's really interesting. Hope you guys feel the same way. And we do feel like this is a very important topic, and we were very fortunate to have Catherine on. So feel free to give us some feedback and just let us know how you feel about what she's speaking of. We'd love to have her back on, and we'd love to make this a continuing conversation. Catherine Jones, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. So excited to be here. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really happy that you took time out of your day to join us because you have quite a job and we'll, we'll get to your job and, and what you do. Um, you had joined us for the Death by Incarceration live show in Worcester, Massachusetts. And before we started the interview, Tim took the words out of my mouth, as he typically does, and said that you commanded the room. And it was uh, pretty impressive. You you were joined there by Nikki Bell, who we recently had on the show as well, and Kevin and Suave. And your story is remarkable, but your engagement with the audience was really noteworthy. You you made it a point to hug people to uh, you know out of the blue, and you had said after that you don't really prepare your remarks before you speak, um, which is also impressive. So I just wanted to uh, compliment you on that and uh, welcome you to the show. And yeah, here she is. Thank you so much. And I think one of the reasons that I don't typically prepare even um, for this interview is because I always want my responses to be authentic and come from my heart. And it comes from a place of passion because of my, my experience and a passion for the work that I do and for everyone that's coming behind me. So thank you for appreciating that. Yes, thank you very much. And um, and the show in Worcester was amazing. Um, hearing a bit about your story it was kind of shocking. Um, really, all the details um, about the time you served and um, what age uh, you started your your uh, serving your time. Would you take us through a little bit of um, of your story? Yeah, absolutely. And I have the very unfortunate distinction at the age of 13 in 1999 of being, and my brother who was 12, of being um, the youngest children at that time to be sent to adult prison. 
our charges were homicide and our victim was our, our stepmother. Violence begets violence. Um, our household was violent and we had both endured long-term sexual abuse. And in my 13-year-old mind, after it was reported, DCF came and did an interview, found indicators of abuse, but kept us in the home. Um, recognized that our uncle who had was a convicted child sex offender who had raped and sodomized a 12-year-old girl was actually allowed to stay in our house. Like we literally answered the door for his probation officer and they never flagged like he shouldn't be around these kids. I just a 13-year-old decision. I did not know about my brother until maybe two weeks prior to the um the crime happening. And when I found out, I just for lack of a better word, kind of snapped and lost it and was like, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get us out of this situation. I'd like to make the distinction that my victim was innocent, had never hurt or harmed me and my brother. And my 13-year-old mind, it was like I had to get rid of all of the adults that were in the house because I don't know why or how we weren't like seasoned criminals, but the thought of getting away with it. And it was was really the 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 reasoning behind her death and prior to it actually happening, of course, it wasn't like you see on TV and it was traumatizing um, even more so for my brother than me. And I, my only thought at that point was to get them out of the plan to, to kill my dad was did not come through and we were arrested the next day. You know, teenagers on the run are going to get me far, especially when they don't know anything about running from cops and and we were charged, and within 21 days, we were adjudicated as adults. It was the year of Columbine, as, as we know, in 1999, and we became like that first national case of kids with guns. And so quickly, they pled us out. You will hardly ever hear of anybody being charged and tried and sentenced within 10 months. It took them 10 months to sentence us. The circumstances surrounding the incident, um, what may have caused it, never came into question. They just pled us out and got it over and done with. And we received an 18 year and life probation sentence. And it was, you know, as I got older and, and, and digested, it, it was, it was, it wasn't justice. It was vengeance in its worst form, but also a clear example, especially when you see what's happened in the media now and the difference of how black children and white children are treated in the criminal justice system. All of the media surrounding us was derogatory, dehumanizing, it wasn't child anymore. It wasn't like these children. The the labels changed to where it was murderers, child killers, of, and then once we were in the system, inmate, felon, violent offender, and which justified treating a twelve and thirteen year old like they were no longer children. And we were put into a situation that instead of rehabilitating or providing opportunities for healing, was even further traumatizing. <laughs> to um, me and my brother, and I won't speak to his experience. He tells his story better than I can, but I remember vividly, and it's been 25 years now, my first strip search and how dehumanizing that was and how shameful it was and hurtful it was. And, and then to be placed in solitary confinement for 18 months because somehow they felt like I was they could, they had the space to charge me as an adult, but didn't know what to do with me once I went to prison. So I spent my first 18 months in solitary confinement. And at an age when that's when we're developing socially, there were, there's still long-term consequences of that. Just being socially awkward, not really knowing how to relate and talk to people, conflict resolution. And I could go on and on about all of the, the traumatization that happened um, during my incarceration. But unlike many of my ICANN members, I knew I had a date. And one day I was coming home and 
I did everything I could to prepare for that. I, I was taking all of the classes that I was permitted to take mostly at the end of my sentence because my, my sentence was so long that they felt like it was a waste of resources. I did not have the opportunity to do true counseling, to deal with the guilt and the shame and the regret of taking someone else's life. That didn't come until five years before my release when I met my mentors and um, my pastor and his wife. And I was really able to heal from that. My first 10 years, I just became a product of my environment, trying to survive hard, cold, disengaging myself from anything on the outside because it hurt too much to think about all my friends going to prom or when I was 16 and having my sweet 16 there. And I knew all my friends were getting their license and learning how to drive. I just choose not, chose not to think about the things and focused on just surviving that horrific zoo that they call um, <laughs> a place of rehabilitation. And about five years before I came home, I met Pastor Charles and they offered a class called Fresh Start. And I wanted it. I knew this was if I went home the way that I had become, that I would be back in prison. And I hadn't healed when I even thought about my uncle who was free. There was no forgiveness in my heart. <laughs> I was angry. I was still and I was afraid of how I would respond if he if he came in contact with me. And then I met them and, and, and they asked me, who was I? And I didn't know. I honestly didn't know who I was anymore. I wasn't that, that young, innocent girl that was long gone. And I, everything I had become was a product of where I was. And I, and I said, I want to tap into the Catherine that I knew before I came to prison. And so I dug deep and it hurt and I had to be broken so that I could be healed and rebuilt. And it was a five-year-long process. And actually, it's a process that I still go through, that I still say how much of, of my responses to life circumstances are because of my experience in prison and how much of it is authentically me. That I think that will be a lifelong process because um, being incarcerated at such a young age does something to you on the inside. And so I came home thinking I had a fresh start. Um, I was ready. I had prepared myself. I was I was actually teaching reentry my last six months because even the reentry teacher recognized like she's hungry, like she's ready. And so I uh, came home so hopeful that I was going to get a, a second a, a second chance at life. And it turned out that that wasn't the truth. That I had the scarlet letter F for felon. That I I got turned down for maybe my first. 10 to 12 job interviews, even though they told me I was the best interview they ever had sometimes. I, I had one lady go so far as to say, when you walked in my office, it was like it filled with sunshine. And she gave me an immediate job offer. I waited for her to give me the call when they come to orientation and it never came. And I called and I called and I called and they just stopped responding. And I can remember sitting in my car crying um, so frustrated. And so I finally got a job at a fast food place and was flipping burgers. So happy to do it. Like I was getting paid to work. But then once I got pregnant and I had a son, I realized that that paycheck wasn't going to take care of me and my family. So once again, went on the job hunt and was met with much of the same. And honestly, it was not until two years ago when the campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth recognized, you know, the, the skill that I had and in, in, in sharing my story and being able to lead the initiatives and offered me a job to work specifically with ICANN women, recognizing that, that there's a gap and um, addressing the, the unique challenges faced by women when they come home, that I had a job that I could be proud of. And, and that provided me with a livable wage to provide opportunities for, for my children. And that 
sparked a passion in me to give that same thing to those that the 800 that have now come home because of our work. Hope that it can happen, but also the tools and the resources they need to make that happen. And so I love my job. It doesn't feel like work most days. It's exhausting. As you know, there's always highs and lows. There's, you know, policy changes and laws that make it through. And then there's some that are turned down and, you know, we just keep fighting. And so that's where I'm at now, doing what I love and hoping that for the sake of my kids, my two beautiful brown babies that are growing up in this America, that there's a, they have an opportunity that they will never be in the position that I was in at 13 years old. Whew, that is a that is a harrowing story. Um, fascinating, uh, b- tragic, but you know, triumphant as well. And bravo to you for coming out of that situation, going into that situation, being put there at no fault of your own, and coming out of it the way you've come out of it. And you've said so many things, and and I'm trying to look at my notes here. There, I was trying to write as fast as possible. I think it's so amazing how you were able to adjust as a 13-year-old girl going into prison um, through those like really, I guess, formative years, especially going into uh, solitary confinement. Um, what does that look like? What, like physically, what does that look like? Because I'm trying to put it, uh, an image in, in people's heads of what it looks like to go into solitary. And, and how does that feel? It looks like um, after they go through the initial intake process where they like wash your hair with like light treatment and um, get you into the room. But it looks like only being permitted to take two showers a week being handcuffed through the door to be escorted to the shower, your handcuffs taken off in the shower. They handcuff you to take you back to your room. It was a 24 seven lockdown with the exception of the 15 minutes you got twice a week to take a shower. I was in what they called blacktop. Um, It since has been condemned because it has a tar roof. So in the summer, it was so hot and there's no air conditioning that we would literally put our sheets in the toilet water and soak them and then put them on top of us to bring our body temperatures down because it was excruciating. And in the winter, it was freezing and we had these like thin cotton blankets. And in the winter time, they would add like a wool blanket, but it's so itchy. And it wasn't like the wool you have when you go by like grade wool and clothes where it just keeps you warm and it's all comfy it was like raw wool and you would just itch all night so you would learn to put the cotton on the bottom and then the wool went on top but it still wasn't sufficient enough those were really thin as well and you would freeze and of course because I was in there so long I went through all of the seasons but we were like forbidden to talk to each other and this is what I, I say about people that are incarcerated because they're painted out as monsters but there is like a resilience to people that are in that situation and a resourcefulness to make things that would be, you wouldn't be able to survive survivable. And we used to sing to each other or we would talk through the walls until of course the, the correctional officers came and, and told us to shut up. But, and then the food was always cold. Like I didn't have a hot meal until finally I was released because your food's prepared in the kitchen. It's, you know, it travels across the compound, which is huge. Lowell is one of the, big, it is the biggest, the largest women's prison in the world. 
And then sometimes the guards would just let our food sit there. And so by, by the time they gave it to us, it was ice cold. Because I was not able to go through an orientation, I didn't know about you know, a library that I could check out books. I didn't know whether how to apply for visitation. I didn't know. So for months, I didn't even have access to a phone because I didn't know my dad's phone number at my heart. And then one day around the week of Christmas, they came to my door and said I had visitation. I guess my dad had been advocating to see me. And they were like, you have a visit. And um, because I was in confinement, I couldn't go to the regular visitation area. I had to go to this little conference room so I didn't have access to like the food and stuff during a visit that most people have through the vending machines. But I was just so grateful to have some personal contact to be able to talk to someone, especially my dad. I was able to talk to him and he asked a guard, like, she doesn't have books. Can we get her books? And that's when they said, oh, yeah, there she can check out two books a week. And you would read them over and over because when you're in a room for 24 hours a day, you will read a book in two to three hours and you try to pick like biggest book that they had but you'd probably read it over and over and Lowell was known for these horrendous cockroaches they were huge and I and I would that's my fear that, that's something that I've been afraid of since I was a little girl I'm, I'm terrified of them and I used to remember one of the punishments the guard was due was to cut my light out because when we had a nice guard I would ask them to keep my light on because I knew once they cut the light off they would come out and they would like crawl on you while you were sleeping and I would bang on my door and be like, please cut my light on, please cut my light on. And if they wanted to be, you know, assholes, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it. And I would stay up all night, just afraid to go to sleep, thinking that if I couldn't watch to keep them off of my bed, that they would crawl on me while I was sleeping. And that's just another example of the, the mental like abuse that the guards used to, to give to us. Um, for no reason, just to be mean. And um, it was during that solitary confinement time that was the first time that I have ever re- experienced a sexual assault from a guard. A male guard came on the wing, handed me my dinner tray. And, and when I went to get it, he grabbed my breast and started groping my breast and stroking on my neck. And um, at the, that point in my life, it was like, I'm not taking it anymore. I'm not going to suffer in silence. I told one of the nice sergeants, her name was Sergeant Seed, I'll never forget because she believed in me. And I was so excited. And she reported it to the inspector and they brought me out of my cell in handcuffs. And I talked to the inspector and got my first rude awakening that there's no justice inside that walls. My voice didn't matter. And it was his golfing buddy. It was his friend. And he was this big Italian guy that, that assaulted me. And he was like, he's Italian and maybe you missed interpreted it because they're really affectionate and but if and this is how I got out of solitary confinement if you write a statement saying that you misinterpreted his actions we can let you out of confinement if you want to continue with it then we're going to do everything we can to protect you and we will keep you in solitary confinement we can keep you up to six months in protective custody release you for 24 hours and then put you back in for another six months. And at this point, I was so desperate to be out of solitary confinement. I wrote the statement. I misinterpreted his actions and off onto the adult compound that I went. So I hope that gives you an idea of what solitary confinement for, for kids is like. 
that that gives a very clear disturbing picture of what solitary confinement is and it's terrible that that happened to you i'm so sorry um it's also infuriating because before you said this was this place was a zoo not a re- rehabilitation facility and you're talking about like literal bugs crawling on you on like they did this to you on purpose sexual assault and this is where they put a 13 year old girl who was defending herself and her brother and now you're in you're in a cage being crawled on like having bugs crawl on you and getting sexually assaulted like that's that's what rehabilitation is i guess in this country for for individuals who don't have the means to better themselves at the time uh, it's just it's infuriating and i'm honestly surprised that that you have such a great sense of humor because uh after the show having a conversation with you even before the show having a conversation with you um you're you know showing pictures and everything and uh, again i commend you for for coming out such like a whole person thank you i wish i could take the credit for that i cannot one i would not have survived anything without a firm foundation of my faith i had to hold on to who I grew up Christian, and as most people who grew up that way, you kind of did your own thing. And then I met Pastor Charles and Miss Betty, and they, when they told me that, who asked me who I was, they told me like, read the Bible and find everything that God says you are. And it was like, I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I'm accepted, and I held on to that with both hands, with everything in me. And it was like, I'm not Brian Stevenson say, I'm not the sum of my worst mistakes. Like I'm forgiven, I can move on, I'm free to. To live a life of redemption and they they seen something in me that had nothing to do with my past and it was like you're a leader you're a motivator you're a mentor and they they, they nurtured that gift and so once I felt like I had a purpose that any pain or trauma that I endured was has a purpose to help other people that are in that same position then it helped put things in perspective and it was like you know what it it sucks that I had to go through it, but if I went through it and there's a, there's a purpose behind it, then it's okay. It's survivable. And um, I've had some horrific experiences even after um, my release, especially with relationships. Like that's something we don't even talk about. How does somebody that's in prison for almost two decades come home and have a healthy relationship? We don't even know what healthy is. Obviously it wasn't, I, we didn't see it before incarceration. Most of us, over 80% of us come from homes violent homes. And, and then you, of course, you really don't see it once you're incarcerated because the mills didn't treat us with respect. So then I came home and navigating that and had some more horrific, violent experiences. And once again, it was like, you know, if now if I can help another female, another woman that's in that same predicament, then so be it. And, you know, I, I, I became stronger because of the experience, but um, yeah, it's, it's all God. It's not the, uh, because I do think I, there has been times where I was just exhausted and I was like, I can't go another day. I can't. I did have times when I was in prison that they stripped me of all my clothes and put me on school to watch. I had those moments. It hasn't always been where I could smile through the pain. There were times that I didn't feel like I could make it another day. It was like, how much like, do I have to fight? And I have those moments now especially in the work I do. It's emotional, it's exhausting. And it's like, how much, how, before we see a change and it seems sometimes pointless, but we have to hold on to hope that one day the system will change. Even when we have decisions like we've gotten in the media <laughs> recently, um, even when you see that to say, you know, it's still there, um, racism is, is, is still alive in every part of our system and we can, but it can change. It's going to change for my kids and my children's 
kids, my grandkids, great grandkids. And um, a little while ago, you mentioned how um, when you entered uh, the prison system, um, you were 13 and you had friends and you sort of had to let that life go just to be able to survive um, day to day. Have you have you sort of um, gotten back in touch with the old uh, Catherine? Yes, yes, yes. I feel like I actually feel like I am a like updated limited edition virgin. <laughs> um, I've 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 found a, a vulnerability and a, a soft mainly through my work um, where people need me to be transparent and vulnerable um, so that they can see that. Uh, my passion is authentic um, and comes from a place of genuine concern, mm-hmm. uh, genuine compassion for other people. And I do feel like I'm finally at a point in my life where I am accepting that I do deserve to be happy. Like I recognize that there is a family that has that I've caused irre- irreparable harm to, but I've healed. I've forgiven myself. Um I, and I and I want that for them, but that I won't be be held captive anymore by that guilt and condemnation that I deserve to be happy. And my kids do that for me. I can't be stuck in the past and I'm trying to raise them in the present and preparing them for their future. And they have brought out a lighthearted side of me like that wants to embrace and enjoy every single moment of life. And when I see their innocence, I'm so protective of that. And I can't protect that from a broken place. I have to be healed and whole so that I can guide them into their futures. And so, yeah, I, I do believe I've tapped into not just the old Catherine, but have found a better one. Wow, that's really cool. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. I'm wondering, do you, you mentioned sort of uh, a lot of memories and painful memories from your time in prison. Do, do you still have um, memories that, that pop up in day to day that you haven't thought about for years? Things that, you know, you've sort of pushed, pushed aside, pushed down. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've been on a panel speaking and something, a memory pops up that I hadn't, that I didn't remember until that moment when I'm speaking. Um, because, you know, in different engagements, they come from different perspectives. Sometimes it's about women, the whether it's the sexual violence perpetrated against the women by the male guards or other dehumanizing things or the food. And so a lot of the times when I'm speaking, something will pop up. And it's funny, one of my colleagues said, every time I see you speak on a panel, I learn something new. and I, I don't like to say anything that glorifies the prison experience, but I will say my only good memories were from the women that I met in there that put me under there. A lot of the who I am now, or even the basic things that you need to learn as a teenager, a teenage female, what they taught me, they taught me how, you know, I remember like life lessons that the women that had life that had been in there a while imparted to me to help me get through it because I think especially at my age it was I would cry you know I miss my family I wanted to see my brother and they were the ones that told me like you have to let that go you're gonna survive in here you have to let that go or it's gonna consume you and I remember like for my 16th birthday they got honey buns and peanut butter and M&Ms and like put it all together and make this beautiful cake 
that was beautiful to me then. I know by standards out here, it probably wasn't. It probably looked like a mess. But this, and then, you know, put my eyeliner on for the first time or they taught me to do my eyebrows. And, you know, they, it, there were beautiful moments that were meaningful and life-changing that came from the women that I were, was incarcerated with and maybe the three or four really good correctional officers that invested in me and seen something in me. And for me to say that there's only three or four and I had been to every women's prison in the state of Florida, let you know that most of them were kind of shitty. <laughs> but there were three or four that made some significant impact on me in my life. But there were more that that did more harm than they did good. Do you uh, still keep in touch? Do you visit any of the uh, women that, you know, impacted you so, you know, in, in a positive way? Yes, I do write them. I'm not able to visit because I have life probation, so they don't allow me to go into the prisons. Um, I actually stay in communication with a couple of the correctional officers, too, that that impacted me in a positive way. And it's funny because many of them used to tell me, like, there's something different about you. Like, you're going to go home and, like, change the world. And from when I was young, they used to say that. Like, you're different. And so now you'll see on my Facebook when they comment or they reach out to me and message me and they were like, we knew it. We knew you were going to go out and be a champion for us. (laughs) You were going to fight because I was a law clerk for almost eight years off and on. And that was me. Like you couldn't curse me out as a correctional officer and think I was going to take it. I was fighting for my rights. And so that was me. I was that person that had a target on my back because I was always writing grievances and saying, you're not going to treat me this way. And, you know, because I studied the uh, chapter 33, which is the policy that governs the Department of Corrections. And so even though I knew they wouldn't get punished, I wanted them to know that I know that you're not supposed to treat me that way. And, um, that's come to my detriment sometimes because I, I feel like I have to fight in every area of my life, whether it's landlords that deny me to rent from them because I'm a convicted felon. It was it was like I'm prepared for battle in every front of my life. And sometimes that's exhausting. Sometimes I don't want to fight anymore. I just want to live. And so that's why I fight so hard now. So maybe one day I can get to a point in my life where everything is an uphill battle. Well, part of what you do for your uh, heroic fight is with the campaign for the fair sentencing of youth, you've mentioned your job and, and how you love this job and your, your title, uh, Tim and I are super hardened individuals We're you know, we're hard to the core. And the only thing that really poses a threat to us is when people come on the show with impressive titles, then we get a little bit intimidated. Uh, your title is, <laughs> your title is uh, co-director. I can't even say that with a straight face. Like I'll joke about that with other people, but <laughs> Um, Anyway, your title is co-director of Outreach and Partnership Development. It's described a bit as um, you you support members of the Incarcerated Children's Advocacy Network, particularly women. That is right from the website. Um, What does that what does that entail? What's your job description and, and what do you do? And it's so narrow because I do so much because with me and um, my colleague, Eddie Ellis, are the co-directors of what's considered our movement building department, which is like the liaison or the bridge between all the other departments and the ICANN members. For the women specifically, um, I, I facilitate a heart-to-heart conversations support group where all of the female-identified ICANN members have a safe space to discuss the challenges that we're facing upon reentry. One thing that I think is often overlooked, especially when children are sentenced to life, is that even when they have the opportunity to come home and now they're 
in their 40s and 50s. Now these women, unlike the men who can produce children at 50, 60, 70 years old, these women now don't have been robbed of that opportunity to bear children, which um, is heartbreaking. And, and you don't really see any type of mental health or emotional support for that struggle. Also, the intersectionality between sexism, feminism, and racism when looking for a job. A lot of construction jobs, you see it in Florida, men get out of prison, walk right into these construction jobs in Florida. But for women, where they're typically in like customer service or corporate positions, those positions are a lot harder to get into when you have a felony conviction, let alone a violent felony conviction. So the needs are unique and the challenges are unique. And that gives us a safe space to not only discuss it, but once we hear I hear what some of the common issues are. Then now I'm thinking about ways and being innovative on ways that we can support them and address those issues, which was where my partnership development part of my title comes in. That's, you know, being in the room with these um, these huge corporations and saying, let's talk about your policy and let's meet these amazing people. Let's humanize children that have committed harm, that were sentenced to life and given the opportunity to meet us in person. And one of the things that I, I say all the time when I'm in these rooms is if you see me in Walmart with my four and five-year-old, you would never know that I was convicted for a homicide when I was 13. You would never know until I told you what my background was. I would just be another mom wrestling with her toddlers in Walmart because they're pulling stuff off the shelves and wanting everything. And so when they see us as people, then it's like, well, maybe we do need to change how we look at formerly incarcerated people in this population. And they and instead of seeing us as felons or convicts, which is why language is so important, they see us as the human beings that made a mistake, that want the opportunity to live a different life. And employment is a huge part of that. Being able to financially take care of yourself to generate um, generational wealth for your family and end the cycle of poverty, which is one of the biggest reasons behind the mass incarceration epidemic. And so that's what, what me and, and all of us on, on movement building do, um, or the CFSY as a whole, is to think of innovative ways to take care of the ones that, because we, we do the policy work and we're good at it. We've quadrupled the states that have banned life without parole in the last five years. We have over 800 people that have been released that were told they were worth nothing more than dying in prison. But now that they're home, what's next? How can we support them when they come home? And I've have the privilege of leading those efforts alongside my other amazing colleagues. So cool. Um, so what, what kind of, th what do you do on like on a day-to-day -day basis? Like take us through like an average day uh, at your job. Um, Zoom meetings. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, oh, that sounds familiar. Um, so we so, do the same stuff then. Yeah. So yeah, we're on <laughs> Zoom meetings most of the day. Um, either meeting with corporate partners, um, different coalitions made up of a bunch of different businesses, navigating with each outreach to our ICANN members just to check in and see how they're doing as a huge part of the job, developing surveys to for them to complete, to, to identify what their needs are. The nitty gritty part of my work is really just engagement with ICANN members because I don't just service them. I'm an ICANN member. So we're constantly planning agendas for national calls, community gatherings, um, self-care retreats, and um, assisting legal and policy and identifying ICANN members in targeted states that we have legislation going on and, pre and preparing them to either give testimony or support their efforts on the ground, um, learning about different 
efforts of our ICANN members and then figuring out ways to support them in their leadership because we, we strictly deal with policy to ban juvenile life without parole, but we have ICANN members that are involved in efforts for clean slate in their states or raising the age limit. or And so while we don't do it, we make sure that they have the tools they need in order to be effective in what they do. So every day, all day, we're thinking about ways to develop the leadership of our ICANN members. And you, you had mentioned earlier about uh, some some current events that are happening that are related to juvenile incarceration um, and just the perception of certain uh, individuals who perhaps have gotten away with uh, some crimes. And I'm assuming that you're talking about Kyle Rittenhouse and, and the verdict Absolutely. there. Yep. Um, what's the, can you, uh, g- give me some feelings on that. Give us some feelings on that. And, and why, why is it one way with someone like him and another way with a 13 year old, uh, young woman who was also defending herself? I'm going to start by saying is my firm belief, and this includes Kyle Reinhouse and any other child that is introduced to the criminal justice system, that no child should ever be facing a, a death by incarceration no matter the motives, no matter, and, and I say that because there are people that would look at the, the circumstances of my crime and feel that I never should have walked out of those gates, that I should have been in prison the rest of my life. So I can't change my moral compass because it may be racially motivated. He was 17. My, the issue is that millions of dollars was raised for his defense, that he was given because of the color of his skin, his white privilege, the benefit of being looked at as a child. He's defending his country. He's a, there was justification for it. When we have so many black and brown kids, actually in the same state, there's a young girl who killed her, the person sex trafficking her, and she's not seen in the light of a victim. Because they look at Black children as more aggressive. They look at them as violent, menaces to society. There's all these negative labels put on them, and they're not given that benefit of the doubt. There's no chance if Kyle Rittenhouse was Black that it would have, one, received the national attention that it did, or that he would have ever been looked at as anything other, other as this violent criminal that needed to be put down as, as any animal that misbehaved. And, that, and that's true. And, and Sean King said something, they said it best, that our criminal justice system was designed to protect white power, white privilege, and white property. And so this was an example of that. This was, it was, I, I could not believe the rhetoric that I was hearing when they were discussing him. And I said, no one, I took it personal. No one looked at me and my brother and said, these are 12 and 13 year old kids. Why did they do what they do? That was never the narrative in the media. What was going on? What would cause them to even think to do anything like this? That was never, um, if you've seen the pictures of me and my brother in the courtroom, how young we looked, that we were never given, and, and none of the ICANN members that are in this network that received life sentences as children was given that same opportunity, that same benefit of the doubt. So it's not him himself. He's still a child facing a life sentence, and, and that's not right. It's, it was the nation's response to it that was so disturbing to me. And, you know, it's the same with the little young Christopher, whatever his name is, that, that sexually assaulted four women and got off with probation. That was actually even only facing eight years in prison for four rapes. I mean, why would a judge have to agonize 
And, you know, we really shouldn't throw his life away. Was that same type of consideration if he was black? Can we have to be honest about these conversations? Let's not pretty it up. Let's not, you know, that, you know, systemic racism. You call it what it, you want. It's blatant racism. And the same standards are not upheld for, for black children and white children. And it's so apparent in what's been going on in the media right now. And to make it personal, there was a 15-year-old girl in the county with, who her and her boyfriend beat to death with a baseball bat. And it was like, she has a drug problem. She's a big, come from an affluent family. She has a drug problem. The drugs made her do it. She's sick. She needs rehabilitation. Am I saying it's wrong that they were affording her the opportunity? Absolutely not. She was 15. She should have. But that same consideration should have been given to me and my brother as well. Yeah. I mean, well said. And it's also extremely irresponsible of the media to put someone like Kyle Rittenhouse on a, on a pedestal. I mean, he he's he's almost being carried around as if he... He threw a perfect game in the World Series, and now he's going to to Disney World. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's incredibly irresponsible because they're not looking at the problem, which is like you said, no child should be put to in jail, uh, should have death by incarceration. But there needs to be checks and balances, and it's not even close. It's yes. it's and and I love it that you said it's not. I mean, call it what you want, systemic or whatever. It's blatant. It's so blatant, especially when you have members of of Congress and government saying he'd make a great intern. Like, yeah. where was that offer for you? Yeah. And <laughs> and what happens when there's other little piles? Like, what example did we set? Because basically, we just gave people permission. Yep. If you're if you're doing it in the name of protecting property, that's going to be everyone's defense at this yep. point. And and what and what who's going to hold the media accountable for that when it when it becomes an epidemic of of kids running around with assault rifles saying that well I'm I'm defending property so it's yeah it's 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 so sad and so infuriating and it's one of those things that I I maybe posted one or two things about that I really couldn't touch um, because there were so I had to weigh because I am. Um, someone that um, that leads in this work. And I just really had to weigh my responses and didn't want to cause additional harm or put another negative you know, rhetoric out about it because I was so angry and personally just so angry and so upset. And once, because of my, once again, because of my personal experience, because it, I can't help but look at it and think, how fair is that? How fair is that? And even now, you don't hear that said about there's many people that won't look at what I've accomplished and the work that I do now will we'll still say, you know, you should have been in prison and should have never gotten out. So yeah, it's sad. It saddens. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, Tucker Carlson will come up with some responsible, uh, you know, <laughs> he'll address it in a responsible manner. He won't, he won't fan the flames and in, in any way. And, uh, and it'll, you know, it'll, it'll resolve itself. <laughs> Um, and we won't we won't regress back to 1776 when we needed to pull out muskets and defend our property from invaders. Yeah, but it, it's scary. <laughs> what you what you said is scary because really you can. It's isn't it amazing that that white couple that pulled their guns on the protesters um, a year or so ago, and and I, I think that they they might have they still might be awaiting trial or something, but it starts with something like that. It was it, thrown out. Was it thrown out? I think I'm pretty sure that, yeah, they're not facing any charges. 
Um, I read that just recently. <laughs> it starts with um, something like that, and then you have a child who who sees that and gets on one knee and just literally starts picking people off because it was you know now we're defending our property and he, that's mm-hmm. what that's what he's being told. And then mm-hmm. he's got you know quasi celebrities who are funding his legal fees. I'm going to stop because I'm getting all worked up. I'm going to mute yeah. myself. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it's it's tragic. Now there's legal precedent to uh, sort of get away with it. Um, so yeah, it's it's absolutely tragic. Catherine, do you still uh, keep in touch with your brother? Uh, that's my best friend. <laughs> uh, we Great. live literally like 11 minutes away from each other. And gosh, just to see our relationship and how it's grown. And it's just a true testament of unconditional love. Like if I can't depend on anybody else in the world, I can depend on him. And and I say that because what was never discussed in the media was that my brother is just as innocent. I, it was my idea. I bullied him. I threatened him to go along with the plan. There's there's a guilt and a sense of responsibility for that, um, that it wasn't just my victim's life that was ruined. My brother's was. And the fact that it shows his awesome character, the fact that um, he operates in forgiveness and he loves me. He can look at what we went through and say, you know, my heart breaks for the 13 year old you. It, I mean, and, you know, and we just have very open, candid conversation. If ever it comes up and, you know, there's some emotions, we're, we're just committed to going through it together. And we have been each other's biggest cheerleaders. Uh, we both navigated reentry together. He's doing amazing He's a business owner at a, a very successful, profitable business. He has uh, two beautiful children. He is just doing amazing. And uh, all of that in spite of, because his experience in the male prison is different from mine in a women's. And in spite of that, if you were to meet him and talk about amazing and a smile and just amazing character and morals that he lives on, he's just an amazing guy. And um, he's my best friend. And we talk several times a day. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, feel free to make the connection if you think that he would make a good guest. We'd love to continue the conversation with with him. And I've, I've always wanted him to be in the ICANN network, and everybody's different. Like, I'm very vocal. I'm very passionate. I'm an advocate. Curtis just wants to live and move on and just, you know, do his thing. And so I respect that. I honor it. Um, I've, of course, I, I can always ask and let him know that you guys are amazing. but. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we had horrific experiences with the media, media when we were younger. So the trust level, mine's grown because I've been in touch with, you know, people like you guys and uh, people that the CFSY has attached me to and recognize that not everybody's in it to sensationalize and hurt people. And but he hasn't had it yet. And so but maybe one day, maybe one day he'll tap into that inner advocate in him and want to talk about his experiences in the hope of, you know, but I think his life in and of itself and how he lives it is testament enough of his resilience and his amazingness. And you had said something um, during the live show, and I just want to make sure that I heard it correctly. Was there something that you and him did before you were both sentenced and to leave? Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Can you, yes. can you tell us about that? <laughs> um, the, the, my, uh, I can't remember if it was his attorney or mine. I think it might've been mine that asked that we were able to see each other after our sentences before we were sent off to prison. And of course, we're going to be separated for the next 18 years and the judge approved it. And he allowed me and my brother to have a face-to-face, um, visit. And, um, you know, we talk, and it's funny because, you know, 
Curtis is like upbeat and chipper. I think I recognize what was really happening. And I'm like sad, but we we decided that we were going to bite each other and like try to leave our bite marks <laughs> so that we would always remember each other. It was like, I don't want to forget you. You got to think to a 13 year old, 2017 and 1999 seemed like some like Jetson type shit. Like the cars are going to be flying. We're going to, you know, I think the world may end before that even happens, <laughs> before 2017 comes. And so that was our very, I don't even want to say immature. It was like, we we really thought that those marks would stay forever. And I remember being so devastated when they disappeared a few days later. And, um, but the truth of the matter was we, 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 we could never forget each other. We could never but 18 years to in our minds was like forever. It was like a whole lifetime. We hadn't even lived 18 years yet. It seemed like a whole lot of time to get to 13. But but yeah, we bit each other and and then we were separated and didn't see each other again for almost 17 years. Wow. Yeah. I when you said that during the live show, I I was I remembered like looking over to the guy who was doing the A V and he was like he looked at me, he's like, What? And you yeah. don't get that from like AV guys because their whole thing is just like pay attention to the cues and and make sure you don't like hit the wrong, uh, you know, they're hit like, someone's mic or something. Yeah, they're like only <laughs> listening for like the technical purpose of it. They're not actually mm-hmm. listening to the content of it. Yeah, he's <laughs> just like shaking his head. Yeah. And I just, I, I needed to make sure that I heard it correctly. I think that is, I think that's one of those details that when you hear it and you obviously experienced it, but when you hear the story, like you need those details, like the cockroaches crawling on you and you needing to bite your brother and him biting you so that you had a mark left on you like that that goes so far in humanizing the whole experience i even think about the experience of my brother asking could he bring his nintendo with him and it's like shouldn't that have told you how young he was to even ask a question um i remember doing our our plea agreement that the judge asked do you understand that, you know, you'll spend the next 18 years in the Department of Corrections and followed by life probation that my uncle outburst and had to get out of the courtroom because he was like, hell no, he don't understand. He's fucking 12 years old. He doesn't. And even now when we think about signing that plea agreement that I know, I just knew that I wasn't getting a life sentence, but did I really know what life probation was? that every single month I had to pay you to supervise me, that I wouldn't be able to leave my county without permission like I literally live three minutes from the next county line and one day I was going to pick up pizza and looked and seen the county sign and I was like oh shit I'm out of county without permission and something like that so innocent if a cop would have pulled me over would have sent me back to prison for the rest of my life do you think I really understood the consequences at 12 and 13 when you said we won't give you life in prison, but we'll give you life probation after your 18-year sentence. Did I really understand what probation meant? I didn't even know what the hell prison was, let alone probation. Like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> we do, you know, who, I'm not even going to say that, but it was like, geez. <laughs> You know, they're legalizing marijuana everywhere. Jeez, I'll never be able to know what it feels like to smoke weed. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. But it was, yeah, it was, yeah, I just, I just can't, I can't even comprehend what judges, the prosecutors, what any of them were thinking um, when they asked that question. Do you understand? Hell no, I don't understand. 
Yeah, it's it's really it's 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 astounding. And I again, like those moments that you just describe, mm-hmm. uh, will resonate with people. And and I'm wondering what people can do to help. Uh, you know, is there a call to action that you have? Uh, how can people who want to help? How can they help? I think the biggest uh, there's a couple things, but I think the biggest is to really read these bills. A lot of people don't know about these local government elections when they're passing of the bills to change some of these barbaric um, laws pertaining to children. The federal legislation, the First Step Implementation Act, prohibits um, them for sentencing a child to to life in prison. Write your senators, (laughs) write your local governments to support this bill. Um, Anything to ban juvenile life without parole, any type of of policy changes surrounding how landlords can make decisions or corporations or businesses can make decisions on hiring based on your criminal background. If the charges were received as a child, they should never even count against you um, when once you come home and you've served your sentence. And there's so many clean slate and in the box um, uh, laws that are going around and need to be voted on. So your voting matters. Voting matters because most states prohibit people like me who have experience from voting because they know when we have the power to vote and it'll change and, and these policies in place. If you're if you're listening and you're a business owner um, and you want to know more about our network, please feel free to reach out to me or my organization and and um, and we can humanize this. We will have conversations with you about your policy and how you're treating people. Hire them. Hire They'll be your best employee that you'll ever have because they'll be so grateful that you gave them a chance. Boy, I flip burgers like none other at that fast food restaurant. I was just so grateful to have a job. So, yes, partner with the CFSY. Go on our website. Check us out. Um, partner, donate, and get involved. Don't be silent. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And I, I just have one more question, uh, sort of unrelated, is uh, on a scale of one to 10, what, what's your tolerance for spicy food? 10. <laughs> Are you talking about that ghost pepper pasta that we had? I <laughs> yeah. ate half of it and I couldn't taste my dessert. I had, And I'm from the South. I'm from the South and I put, my kids are four and five and you give them food and they're like, where's the hot sauce? Like we grow up eating that ghost pepper, that noodle. Um, I don't know the exact name of it, Liz. She can help me out. But I ate it and I was like, it tastes so good. But I got halfway through it and I was like, I can't feel my lips anymore. It like was my like, lips are done. It was like a <laughs> gallon of of uh, of ramen. Big shout out to that restaurant, which is right next door to uh, to the Brick Box Theater. Um, it was it it was good, but it it was impressive. It was impressive yeah. that you did what you did, <laughs> to, and 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 walked out of there with with uh <laughs> with all of your bearings still still intact. So yeah, Lance, I think you knew the answer to that before you asked it because yeah. you were a witness to the greatness. <laughs> yeah, it was it was impressive. We we took a we took a sample bite of it, and um, it's instant sweat. Like there was no there, that was no joke. And you're like, I can't feel my taste buds. I can't taste my dessert. <laughs> they were like, the dessert's so good. And I ate it. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, well, uh, any, any closing thoughts? Is there a message to those who have come out and they don't know what to do or, or, or think like, or do you have any, um, any message to people who are, who have been in, in your position and now they're just kind of, kind of lost? Yeah. Um, you're not 
you're not defined by your past mistake. I don't care how many no's you get. I don't care how many doors are closing your face. Keep trying. Hold on. There are people that see you and um, God will place them in your path at just the right time. Just don't give up. And for all the little 13-year-old Catherines that are suffering through trauma in silence, um, there's resources. There's people you can reach out to. Um, I'm at www.cfsy.org. Find my number and get an email on there. Um, if you're not alone, your voice matters. Um, think long and hard before you make a decision that's going to change the rest of your life. There's another way out. So I always like to end on that because I know that my situation isn't unique and that there's another 12 or 13 year old maybe possibly thinking about the same mistake, making the same mistake that I did. Perfect. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you.